0: This is from the Shobo Genzo, case, case, 179. <coughs> Jiefeng, thirst and starvation, the main case. Jiefeng said, there are many people who sit beside a rice bucket dying from starvation. There are also many who sit beside a great body of water dying of thirst. Zhuang Sa, Juan Sha sorry, said, There are many who sink their heads inside the rice bucket and still starve to death. There are also many who stick their heads into water and yet die of thirst. Newman said, Throughout the entire body is rice. Throughout the entire <coughs> body is water. <coughs> Commentary. If you can see it clearly then you know how to use it on the road freely like a, like a bird in flight or a fish in the water however if you have not yet seen it the road prevails and you're like a bird in a cage or a fish in a bucket at times a single phrase is like a lion stalking its prey at another time Is like a surfer riding the waves. And sometimes a single phrase is like a diamond sword that cuts off the tongues of everyone on earth. When adepts meet, they can see what is appropriate, are able to distinguish right from wrong, and together witness each other's clarity. The capping verse. Born in the same way, they know the household's pantry well. Dying in different ways, each travels in a separate direction. Where would you find them? Look, look. So, last week, <sighs> I talked about the resiliency As a trait that can help us stay on track when we're experiencing challenges or challenging times that potentially can threaten or diminish our resolve and rob us of practice. It is a quality that certainly keeps the practice alive and also develops and sharpens the practice itself. So this is one of the many ways the practice sustains itself as long as there is some level of underlying understanding of what it is that we are practicing, or how to practice. Actually, I thought about this uh, in relation to discipline. and uh, What is discipline? What is a disciple without discipline? We consider ourselves students of the way, disciples of the way. But a disciple without discipline is not a disciple. It's the same origin, the same word. The way a disciple brings about the practice is through discipline, which means facing challenges. Actually it means expecting challenges, hardships, pain using that, as, as Suzuki says, using that as weeds of the mind, you, you pull out the weeds and you bury them next to the plant so they nourish the plant. So these challenges can nourish our practice, strengthen our resolve, make us see what we need to see. So if we look at resiliency and determination, as necessary qualities for maintaining the longevity of spiritual practice, we need to examine what lies at the basis of these qualities and what fuels them. What brings about such qualities? One of the studies I quoted from last week looked at the relationship between the development of resiliency and maintaining a positive outlook, which I see as a kind of rubber band that keeps pulling us back towards that which is wholesome, even when we are exposed to harsh weather and dark circumstances. It's like having a built-in homing device that relentlessly keeps transmitting. But the location from which the transmission comes from is unknown to us, and so home itself is also unknown to us. As an ancient master once said, it is on this mountain, but because of the heavy mist, the exact location is unknown. And it needs to remain unknown. That unknown is very difficult for us to grasp, let alone trust. trust is exactly what is needed when the darkness sets in and the doubts appear. And they do appear. They're bound to appear. It's it's easy to trust the warmth and life-sustaining power of the sun when we feel it on our skin in broad daylight. But how do we trust it in the middle of the night when it's cold? We do have an understanding that the sun is always shining, right? We know that, but our senses are telling us otherwise. So if we believe our senses, the sun is not shining, and there is no warmth, because we don't feel warmth. But the sun itself never rises, never sets. It shines relentlessly. All the time. It's the same with the light of the Dharma. It is the light of the Dharma. It doesn't know how to stop. It doesn't know how to begin. It is ceaseless. It's just that we don't always feel this way. Sometimes we do. We all do. I think even people that don't practice have moments of incredible connectedness, regardless of circumstances and conditions. But it is so elusive, it becomes a great memory to frame. But it's not food that can sustain us, yet. So when you examine the basis of qualities such as resiliency, tenacity and determination, if you do examine, and we have to examine, we reach a place of not seeing anything tangible and yet somehow there is a force that keeps propelling you towards, forward, towards something, towards the unknown. Only if you choose to listen and obey it. While it is undefined, unknown and ungraspable, it has a power. It has the power to turn the earth on its axis and to move mountains. The power to dissolve what is stuck and untie what is bound. By being undefined and unknown, it is not a thing and therefore is not limited to any boundaries. Only a thing is limited to its thingness because it has borders. Because it's defined and no thing has no definition. What would it be limited to or by? So how do we know it's there? How do we learn to trust it in the midst of experiencing doubts? we know what it is to not trust the unknown, we know what it is to turn towards that which is known and to put our trust in that which we can see, hear, smell, touch and most importantly think about. This means we, we will have to trust the senses to be correct, right? So the senses for us are the correct parameters by which to examine because that's what we believe. We believe what we smell to be true. We believe what we hear to be the way reality appears. We believe what we think to be the way we understand reality or make sense of it. But what else would we believe? All that is tangible. All that is felt, experienced. Which makes sense that we would hold on to it. But that results in basing our lives on highly inaccurate and unstable equipment. That's what it is. Our senses are highly inaccurate. One day we feel this way. Well, the world is great. We feel great. We feel healthy, strong, powerful, optimistic. Positive. Everything flows. We love everybody. The next day, we don't. We feel under the weather. We feel sluggish. Tired. We lose the, the positive that we had the day before. So reality sucks. So which is it? Well, if we go by the senses we get confused. Because sometimes it's this way, sometimes it's that way. But again, what else should we trust? How else should we practice? We need to ask questions like that. We look for a home in the four walls, and the ceiling. We believe that Purchasing insurance buys us security, right? Going along with senses, this is what we end up with, this kind of a life. We we search for stability in changing circumstances and conditions, and we ask others to make us content. This is the reality that we have. This is what we have to deal with. or this is what we create when we go along with the senses, with what feels good. Go towards what feels good, go away away, run away from what feels not so good or painful. But the practice is asking us to change that to turn towards where it's difficult and to examine what is difficulty how do I know that this is wrong? how do I know it should not be this way? Chongyam Trungpa Rinpoche used to say that when he sits and meditates, he purposefully goes towards where it hurts. He goes towards the problems and the challenges because if he doesn't, he says, they would come and get him. Obviously we know that. It catches up with us. Sooner or later, what we deny, what we reject, comes up again at times we least expect it not only comes up again but it sabotages things for us it sabotages life it takes the joy out of life so to, to practice is to take responsibility to look and to ask what am I what kind of food am I eating to sustain what I'm doing? Or where do I take the food? Where do I find it? In all that, I think that the question itself, all the questions we have, come down to a deep yearning to be at home. We all want to be at home. We all want to be at peace, at ease with ourselves. And yet, there is an imagined belief that we are removed from it. So, the yearning to be home and the imagined belief that we are removed from it is what feeds us. That is the food. So, on one level we know something to be true. And on another, the way we go about looking for it is deceiving. So we have to trust what we know before we take a step. Before we go with the automatic, with the assumption. This is where my food is. That's what I need. For stability, for security, for happiness, for contentment. For peace. To be at home. That's the way home. With that, it is not surprising that we witness so much discontent and unhappiness in our culture, in our hearts. One study about discontentment, it says, compared with Americans in 1957, today we own twice as many cars per person, eat out twice as often and enjoy endless other commodities that weren't around then. But are we any happier? Certainly happiness is difficult to pin down, let alone measure. But a recent literature review suggests that we are no more contented than we were then. In fact, maybe even this. Which is very interesting because we think that we can buy our way into or towards or buy home. Buy contentment. So all we're concerned with well, how can I make enough money to buy it? Because I'm told that I have to purchase it. But the result is opposite. We become less content. We become less connected, more scattered, removed from home. This study said, compared with their grandparents, today's young adults have grown up with much more affluence slightly less happiness, and much greater risk of depression and assaulted social pathology. Our becoming much better off over the last four decades has not been accompanied by one iota of increased subjective well-being. That's quoting from the research, from the study. So something has grown, something is growing, But it's not helping us. In fact, it's making it worse, more difficult. Discontentment has been our companion since cognition began to develop in us as human beings. And the consequences of it are laced through our recorded history as we know it. But the industrial world and all the so-called advancements it is providing us has accelerated the progress of this malady rather than remedy it, made it worse. From early childhood we are trained to think and act as obedient consumers and we are encouraged to believe that contentment is attached to external conditions. Even spirituality has become a commodity these days. If we are not careful, our practice can also be seen as a thing to consume. And it is becoming that way. It's becoming that way because of us, us people, because we think that the main focus is to move the economy. Well, if we want to move the economy forward and make it grow and grow and grow, then we have to figure out what can we sell. And if spirituality is becoming popular, well, it's another thing to sell. Let's package it. Let's make it easy for people. Let's make it digestible. I think this is why Zen is so difficult for people, why Zen is not so popular. We're not given, we are given instructions, but we're not given instructions when we sit on the cushion. You're on your own. You're given instructions. You're on the cushion, you sit, you're on your own. Nobody's holding your hand. Nobody is telling you, don't worry, it's okay. Take it easy, relax. Would you like some coffee? Sprawl, relax, put your head on the pillow. Take a nap. No, you're told the opposite. When, difficult, when difficulties come, face them, work with them. But who wants that? How do you sell that? You, you can't put a price tag on that. Come here, we'll make you suffer. $1,000 in advance, not gonna work. It's not consumable. Another interesting article I came across said, in our current system, Everything is driven by feeding an 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 insatiable appetite. Without demand, suppliers cannot survive. So it is imperative that demand is stoked, fueled, twisted, and ensured by whatever means, ethical or not. This system is so entrenched that it doesn't know how to stop unless by raising production and consumption. There is no stopping the madness unless we look at what propels it. Or unless we stop believing that this is the way to go, the way to freedom, the way to contentment, the way home, as we do believe that. It says it's a battle to to keep up the system going with marketing strategies challenged to create more devious, delusional and empty promises to feed the insatiable spiritual hunger people have. Now here they say spiritual hunger, because that's what it comes down to. We don't want more cars. we don't want bigger houses. We think we do. We are taught to believe we do. But we also know it doesn't solve anything. Because the hunger is spiritual. It's not material. We have what we need. We don't need much to survive. Just a little food, a shelter, which most have. We don't need much more than that. It says the more empty the consumption, the more that hunger grows. Eventually, it says, the whole system will implode. It has to. When the economic tsunami hits, what will you do? That's still quoting from the article. When the economic tsunami hit, what will you do? Well, it's heating now. Every day it's heating. We know that. When there's nothing to grasp, nothing to hold on to, what do you stand on? What do you sit on? What is your food? If you're dependent on this kind of food, there is a problem. First, because it doesn't do what it's promising to do. Second, because it's depleting. Either way, there is an issue to look at. Either way, we have to be serious about looking at it. We can't ignore it. John Steinbeck. Uh, an American writer described this malady very well. He says, he said, where does this content start? You are warm enough, but yet you shiver. You are fed, yet you experience hunger. You have been loved, but yet you, you are yearning, your yearning wanders in new fields. And to pride all this. There's time. The bastard, time. Ticking. Moment by moment. I got to accumulate more. Before it runs out. I have no time. I got to get there. Why is this hunger so strong in us? What is it that's missing in your life, in your life? It has to come down to your life. What are you lacking? What will make you feel complete? What will make you feel more you? What do you really want? we may feel that we need to struggle to find the missing piece of the puzzle that will eventually complete the picture of our lives, right? But essentially, that picture can never be broken to pieces because what seems to be a piece is also inherently complete in and of itself. The totality is equally reflected in every particle, regardless of its size, shape, color, or the value we place on it, which is probably more important, because we do place value on commodities. So we quantify, we quantify ourselves, we quantify everything we come across. But mostly ourselves. Fundamentally, there there are no issues and everything is exactly the way it needs to be. But according to the self that judges and quantifies, life is sometimes accepted, and sometimes rejected. The complications begin with wanting to make the ineffable effable, in wanting to grasp the ungraspable, in wanting to make a thing out of no thing. And all the while while we are trying to satisfy the hunger and quench the thirst, we are sitting next to an endless amount of rice and water, as Jeffen is saying in this coin. Or maybe more accurately, as Yunmen is saying. Throughout the body, there's the food. The body sustains itself very well. It knows. We know. Or like the ancient wisdom of acupuncture. It knows, acupuncture knows, that the body has what it takes to heal itself. So the work is not about trying to figure out where to get the food from. The work is to try to figure out how to get the stuck, unstuck. But first we have to see where is it stuck. That's the beauty, that's the wisdom of this ancient healing tradition. It's the same with our healing tradition. This is why Shakyamuni is the great physician. Turns the Dharma wheel. And what he said is that, you know, here here it is. A wheel that is stuck. Let's figure out a way to get it unstuck. It wants to move. It is unstuck because we have false beliefs. Because we think we are stuck, we are stuck. And as long as we hold on to a belief, a belief of being stuck, we are putting our trust in a fallacy. And the fallacy becomes reality. And we can live an entire life trusting that. There's a famous story about a Japanese steamship that traveled up the Amazon river in South America for the first time. It was a long journey and they ran out of drinking water. Luckily, a British ship came by and the sailors signaled them and asked if they have any drinking water to spare. The British sailors signaled back saying, please lower down your buckets into the water and you will find what you need. The Japanese sailors did that and were surprised. They were under the impression that this is salt water, non-drinkable water, that this water cannot quench them because in Japan they're not used to such big rivers. This must be the ocean. This cannot be home. This is foreign. This is foreign. We think we are surrounding, surrounded by, made off, something that does not have the power to sustain us. So we look elsewhere, we look outside, we create an outside. It's like us feverishly searching for that which will put to rest the nagging feeling of inadequacy, insecurity, fear, and all the subsequent emotions that follow that, without realizing that it is the very ground on which we stand. In fact, it is even closer than that, like Yunman says. We are made of it. So where's the gap? Where does it begin? Why are we doing this to ourselves? Why do we feel so disconnected? so removed, so far away from home, being at home. I think I've shared that before with you in different Dharma talk, how I grew up with a father who was hardly ever satisfied with what he had. He was very often preoccupied with thoughts about other people who had bigger homes, better costs, more accomplished wives, and so on. And held, held on to belief that life screwed him over and contentment was an outcome of a social status which others had and he did not. And I remember many discussions I've had with him where I was trying very hard to show him how much beauty there is in appreciating what he had and how content he could be if he stops looking outside. And these discussions began when I was Think about 13 or 14 years old. So he would end up saying, you're still young. You'll grow up and you'll understand. Now this is many years later and I still feel this way. So either I didn't grow up or I grew up without an understanding based on his words. Maybe you can decide that. But the sad part about this is that he did have some measure of realization. But it was too late. He was on his deathbed. He died of lung cancer after smoking for many years. And he did realize, and he said, everything I always wanted was always there. But I couldn't see it. Too little, too late, too bad. And that's what happens. Spent spend an entire life living this way, only to realize, last breath, I just pissed it all away, screwed it all up. So what kind of nourishment do we get from the rice and water, Jifeng, Zhuan Sha and Yunmen are talking about? It is plain, flavorless, cheap, and very easy to disregard and not even see. And yet, in this context, it is the most precious and life-sustaining. The whole things is the most precious and life-sustaining. The colors, flavors, and sights can be very easily distracting us from the subtle intimacy of the myriad things. But when we stop being so mesmerized and intoxicated by the sights and sounds, get quiet for a little while, become still. We can be less distracted and be reminded of who we really are simply by picking up a grain of rice or observing a mote of dust. Just think about it yesterday, we went to a a sashin. And uh, we ate jihatsu style meals. And you know, some of you know that, that you you, eat, you have chopsticks and you, you get some rice and things and you eat it only with chopsticks. So there's always those last few grains of rice that you're trying to pick up with chopsticks. Well, you know that if you don't pick it up and eat it, you're gonna end up drinking it because that's what's next, right? There's no waste. Because the, the hot tea is going to be poured into that and mix it up and swallow it. So the, the first choice is to try and pick it up and eat it, chew it. And, uh, and the rice was somewhat hard, not fully cooked. So then I was eating it and then thinking, well, here I am eating it and then experiencing a thought that's saying, somebody doesn't know how to cook. There was this thought and yet I was trying very hard to pick pick up that last piece of, last grain of rice and and I was laughing at it. Not out loud, but I was laughing at it because it's still there. There is a thought that's saying they should learn how to cook better. But there is also a simple grain of rice that doesn't know better or worse that is there just because it's there. Being soft, being hard, it doesn't care about whether or not I find it chewable, digestible, agreeable. It's just there. I pick it up, I don't pick it up, I drink it, I chew it. It is still teaching. It is always teaching but it has no value for us, and that's the problem. It has no value. Nietzsche said, for happiness, how little suffices for happiness. The least thing, precisely. The gentlest thing, the slightest thing. A lizard's rustling, a breath, a whisk, an eye glance. Little makes up the best happiness. Be still, be still, stop, stop the madness, take a look, take a listen, sit down for a little while, sit down for a little while. This is what makes our practice so powerful, something so simple as Sitting, getting quiet, not moving. Being with what? Being with what? With something? With nothing? We have to examine that. What am I with when I sit? Who am I with? Or who is with what? I don't know. I can't answer this question not in the way that you would expect it to be answered. I don't need to answer these questions, you do. Each and every one of you need to answer these questions in the practice, through the practice with the feelings of wanting to be elsewhere while you are here. Wanting to get up and go. Because the pain becomes intolerable. And it does. It did. For all of us. Even years of practice. I did experience a lot of pain yesterday. The sashim we went to. And sittings are longer. 45 minute periods of sitting. Not only that. But eating was also done on the cushion. so that added to that so there is there are many times of intense pain and you learn to walk with it you look at it you breathe through it rather than obey that you obey something else the body knows how to deal with things if you give it a chance but if you run away how do you know You don't know because you don't trust it. But if you stay with it and you trust it and you give it a chance, it will show you. It will show you the power it has. It will show you the power you have. It will show you throughout the body. Rice. Throughout the body. Water. Throughout the body. Nourishment. The exact nourishment you are seeking. He's already there. Dogen said, Generally speaking, in the dwelling places of Buddhas and ancestors, taking tea and eating rice is what constitutes their everyday life. This custom of taking tea and eating rice has been passed on to us and fully manifests itself in the here and now. This is why the taking of tea and eating of rice by the Buddhas and ancestors has come down to us as a way of living. As a way of living. Taking tea, drinking water, eating rice. Every day. Sitting. Practicing. Getting up. Walking. Moving. Eating. Talking. When does it not manifest? What does it depend on? Does it depend on anything? Will it arrive at a later time? Is it missing now? Is 85 years of life better than 5 years? 6 years? 20 years? Is more better? We think that. We definitely think that, and we construct our lives based on more is much better. But when does more become enough? Never. That we know. I think we know it from our own experience. We also know it from looking around and seeing people who you would think would be most content most at peace because they got enough money to buy it or enough stuff to show it. Not quite. Not quite. Actually, Jesus said it as well as any other great teacher, he said, to those who have, more shall be given. And from those who have not, even what they have will be taken away from them. Same thing. Different words. Different times. Same message. Same teaching. I'd like to like to end with uh, one of my favorite Poems by Rumi he said keep walking though there's no place to get to. Don't try to see through the distances. That's not for human beings. Move within but don't move the way fear makes you move. It's the best line of this. Don't move the way fear makes you move. Isn't that what we do? Fear moves us. But where do we go when we are moved by fear? Away, away from what? And he says, today, like every other day, we wake up empty and frightened. Don't open the door to the study and begin reading." Take down a musical instrument. Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. There are innumerable ways to appreciate justice.